How's everybody doing? Great. Great. It's good to be with you guys. Welcome to Chester Christian Church this morning. If you are here visiting with us, we are glad that you're here. Um, We're glad that you're here if you've been coming for a while. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Old Testament book of Psalms. We are wrapping up our Summer in the Psalms series this morning. It's been a good, good sermon series. I've enjoyed being in the Psalms. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Uh, they, actually, they actually might make a comeback around Christmas time, Advent time. I may come back to the Psalms. They may make a comeback, so we'll see. Uh, I haven't decided yet, but Psalm 15 is where we're going to be. Psalm 15. <clears throat> the author of Psalm 15 is King David. If you don't know who King David is, if you didn't grow up in church, you don't have a church background, that's all right. Uh, But King David was a king. He was the second king of Israel, and he is most known for his battle with David and Goliath and uh, defeating the giants, and he's known for a lot of other things as well, but we won't get into that. (laughs) Psalm 15. Before I read that, I'd like for us to pray together. Father God, I just thank you so much for our time together to worship. Um, God, to sing songs, to lift up our voices to you, and to to break open your word and to study. And Father, I just pray that uh, as we come to our time now, that uh, you would just continue to open our minds and our hearts. Um, God, that your spirit would continue to move and that we would uh, just allow... uh, just allow your spirit to move, God, in our hearts and convict us when we need to be convicted. I pray, Father, that you would help us uh, this morning to see, to see you for who you are, how beautiful you are, and that we would see our need uh, for, for you. Father, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Am I coming through the monitors at all up here? I'm not? Okay. Is, can everybody hear me okay? Everybody's good? All right, Psalm 15, this is what the psalmist writes. This is what King David writes. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now sometimes it's irritating. Sometimes it's very exhausting. Sometimes it's encouraging and sometimes it can be enlightening. But the fact is that human beings ask questions, don't we? Right? We, we love to ask questions. We, we ask questions all the time, and asking questions is actually a good thing. Now, if you're a parent of a young child, sometimes, and this is where the exhausting part comes in, right? sometimes you are just exhausted by all of the questions, right? Can I get an amen? Yeah, amen. So, I mean, just question after question, what is that? What is this? Daddy, what are you doing? But every now and then, every once in a while, sometimes your kids will surprise you and they will ask you a very deep theological question that's just like, 
That's a good question. For instance, my oldest son, Jude, who's about to turn seven next week, or this week, I guess, this week, um, asked a question just a couple of weeks ago. He said, Daddy, could God stand in the deep end of a pool? I'm like, that's a, that's a good question. That's a good, that's a good, good question, uh, although I'm pretty sure he would just walk on the water like Jesus did, right? And, but but that, was a, that was a good question. Can God stand in the deep end of a pool, right? Questions, questions, questions. David, King David, who is the author of this psalm, starts Psalm 15 with a very good question. It's a, very, it's a thought-provoking question. It's, it's considered by some, uh, as the title of the sermon is, is says, to be the ultimate question. Right? Some scholars say it's the ultimate question. It's a question that really gets to the heart of the identity of every human being. If you want to know who you are, if you want to know why you have been given breath in your lungs, why you wake up every morning, if you want to know what life is all about, you need to ask this question, this question that David asked. I mean, you couldn't ask a better question than the one David asked in Psalm 15. I mean, look at the, look at the verse 1 there, opening verses. David, he, it's, it's, it's kind of poetic language, and so let me just kind of explain what some of these terms mean. But he starts out... Uh, very first thing is, O Lord, and O Lord is all caps, which means it is the covenant name of God, so it's Yahweh. Right? It's the name that God used with Moses in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when he sends Moses into Egypt to confront Pharaoh, right, to let my people go. And Moses said, well, Pharaoh asked, who sent me? Who do I tell them sent me? And God said, you tell him, I am who I am. It's the covenant name for God. And then David uses words like sojourn. And it just simply means to abide, right? It can also mean to seek hospitality, all right? Now, what we have to understand is, is that hospitality in the Old Testament is very different than what hospitality today is, all right? When, when, you, when you went to somebody's house in the Old Testament, when you sought out hospitality, you were seeking out safety and security, Right? You were to be protected against all costs. Right? You were welcomed into this person's home, and you were safe. And so that might explain some of the Old Testament stories that you read when you go back and read those as to why some of the things happened the way they did. Right? But that's what hospitality was. He uses the word dwell, which means to settle down. It means to establish. It means to rest. And so David asks, he says, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, the tent represented the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and it was built to house the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, right? So who shall, who shall sojourn in your, uh, in, your, in your tent, the tabernacle? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And again, the holy hill is just representative of where the tabernacle stood. Again, it was a more permanent place for God's dwelling. And so, again, this is all poetic language, but David is basically asking this question God, who may live in your presence? Who may live in your, who is able, who has the right to live in the presence of God? Right, I mean, he, he doesn't want to simply just go for a visit. He, he doesn't want to just go for, for a, a period of time, but he wants to, to dwell there. He wants to live there. He wants to rest in God's presence. And David is asking for true spiritual intimacy here. He is desiring to be in the presence of God continually. And whether you acknowledge God or not, the bottom line is, is we were all created for relationship with God. Now, this is what your life is about. We were created to be in relationship with God. And so David says, hey, what is the standard? 
Right, well, what, what, what's, the, what's the bar for someone to continually dwell in the presence of God? And God, the, the, the beautiful thing here is God provides David with the answer. He provides David with the answer. So let's look at verse 2. And this is what God says. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So right off the bat, we see a word there, blamelessly, which means he walks with integrity. This man is without blemish. He is perfect. He is upright. This man has a personal godliness. This man has integrity, which, again, which means a whole man. He is a complete man. He is an undivided man. In other words, he's not a hypocrite. He doesn't, he doesn't put on a mask. He's not, he doesn't act one way with one person or one group and then another way with one person or another group. But he is complete. He is undivided. I notice the three participles in this verse. It says he walks, he works, and he speaks. He walks blamelessly. He works righteousness, and he speaks truth in his heart. And that last phrase in verse 2 is really important for us because here's the deal. The reader of this psalm, right, if we were reading this psalm, you would expect to hear the words walks, walks blamelessly, walks with integrity, you would expect to hear he works righteousness, but then you would expect the, 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 the writer to say he speaks truth with his lips, right? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that because God is not satisfied with external conformity, right? This is not only has to be the man's words, but words that flow from the man's heart, And the Bible is going to constantly tell us that the heart is the center of our whole being. The heart is our motivational core of who you are. The heart is the directional system of your life. And the Bible says that what rules your heart is what rules your words and what ultimately rules your behavior. And these words in Psalm 15 closely resemble Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. Right, you can find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, uh, 6, and 7. Uh, because what Jesus does throughout that Sermon on the Mount is he takes the Old Testament law, right, the Ten Commandments back in Exodus, and he takes commandments like, you know, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. And, he, and these commands, these Old Testament laws, they basically addressed external behavior, right? Don't steal, don't take that, don't take what's not yours. Don't kill somebody, right? External behavior. But Jesus, what Jesus does is he comes along and he's going to go after the person's heart. And he raises the bar and he says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. But I tell you that if you even hate somebody in your heart, then you've committed murder. Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery in your heart. You know, uh, you, uh, you've heard it said that you shall not covet, but I tell you, if you even look at someone else's donkey with desire, right, you, you, you have committed, uh, you, you've coveted somebody else's donkey. You've done that. And Jesus says this. He says, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's, that's what Jesus said. Right, righteousness, which means right thinking with God, always begins with the heart. And so the Bible is going to continually drive us again and again to our heart because who or whatever owns your heart owns you. 
But this man, the blameless man, has an inner attitude combined with an outward walk that shows us that he's not just about external behavior. Right? He's not just about external behavior. And that's just verse 2. That's just the first verse of this, right? Do you feel the weight of this, right? And the psalmist continues and he expands on the heart in verse 3 because this man is someone who does not slander, right? He doesn't, use, he doesn't slander people with his words, with his tongue, and he does no evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend. This person whose heart is ruled by God would never speak ill against anyone. He would never do something that God would say is evil to his neighbor, no act of, of selfishness. Ouch. No moment of impatience or irritation. Like, I, I couldn't tell you how many times in a day that I get impatient or I get irritated with my three kids. No lashing out with unkind words. How many times have you ever been so angry or you've been so mad that you've just said something and you wish you could take it back like it's out there, right? And have you ever said to yourself, man, I can't believe I said that. That's not me. You know why you said that? Because of what we just said, right? It was in your heart. Whatever's in your heart is going to come out. That's what it's saying. No, no pushing myself to the center of attention because I want to be in the center. No closing my eyes to the needs of others because I'm more concerned about my own personal needs. See, says someone who wouldn't take up a reproach against his friend. Now, that word reproach is an interesting word because it means to disgrace. It means to shame. In other words, you would never do anything that would shame or disgrace another person's reputation in any way. It's a powerful metaphor for gossip. And I know nobody in here ever gossips, Right? People use gossip to hurt people, right? We, we use gossip in order to feel better about ourselves because when we're talking about somebody else and their problems, it makes us feel like we're superior. Again, we see Jesus' words in the New Testament when he says that the two greatest commandments, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's verse 2 and 3. I don't know about you, but I, I was out in the first word of verse 2, right? I mean, I, I, I don't qualify, okay? Uh, but, but the psalmist continues, and in verse 4 he says, This man in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This man has an unshakable moral conviction. I mean, he has an allegiance to the Lord that he is repulsed by sin. Right, sin is not attractive to him, it's not magnetic, it's not seductive, right? He doesn't flirt with it, he doesn't entertain it, he doesn't, he doesn't look at sin and see how close he can get to it without going over the line, right? Like, how, how, how close can I get to doing this without actually sinning? That, that, that's, that's a lot of times the questions that we ask, but this man doesn't even get near the line. This is a man who makes a promise and is committed to honoring that promise. Right, when a person makes a promise... They will keep this promise even if it costs them personal pain. Now listen, we, we make promises all the time. Right, we make promises to a friend that we're going to be there for them. If you're married, you made a promise to your spouse. You stood before God and everybody else and you said, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be with you 
through thick and thin. And it's a promise to be there regardless of how you feel. And this flies in the face of our culture because our culture says that you don't need to keep a promise if it does not fulfill you. If, 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 if they're not making you happy, if they're not keeping up their end of the bargain, then you can get out of the promise. You can break that promise. If you're not happy, just leave. Your needs, your personal fulfillment is way more important than a promise. That's what our culture says. But this person doesn't say, hey, you know what? I didn't know it was going to be this hard, so I'm going to tap out. Now, this person keeps their promise even at their own hurt. And finally, verse 5, this is a person who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, uh, that, that's all right, but, but one of the commands that God gives his people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament is, is this command. He says, hey, listen, if, if one of your fellow countrymen falls on hard times and he comes to you and asks to borrow something, do not loan it to them and then charge them interest. Like, like don't, don't try to make money off of their misfortune. Don't try to get rich because of their downturn. But also, this is a person who is unwilling to be bought. Right? You, can't, you can't do a shakedown on this person. Right? You can't go and bribe this person. In other words, this person's business dealings are always on the up and up. They're trustworthy. They're unwilling to take a bribe in order to benefit themselves. And then the psalmist closes by saying, the one who does these things shall never be moved. And so as we can see, David's question has been answered, hasn't it? Who has the right to be in God's presence? Who has a right to be able to dwell in the presence of God continually? It's a person who is holy, who is blameless. Anyone here meet that criteria? Does David, the writer of this psalm, meet this criteria, these standards? Right. I mean, the, the thing I didn't mention earlier about David, listen, David was... An adulterer. He was a murderer. David doesn't meet these standards. I mean, listen, when you read this psalm, this psalm is crushing. This psalm is devastating. When you read this, you are like, who can do this? And that's the point, right? We, we can't do Psalm 15. We're not Psalm 15. As a matter of fact, if you turn back one Psalm, we're Psalm 14. Look at Psalm 14, kind of midway down. You can read the whole thing, but let me just read a portion of it here for you. All right, Psalm 14 is where we're at, okay? Uh, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none. Not one single person who does good, not even one. That, that's Psalm 14, that's, that's us. And so when you get to Psalm 15, Psalm 15 is like this huge wall, this huge gap between a holy and righteous God and sinful man. And Psalm 15, what Psalm 15 does is it exposes the wickedness in our hearts. It exposes our sinful condition and it shows us just how far from God we are. I mean, there are, there are people who are like, you know what, I, I do pretty well. 
I'm a pretty good person. And then when you start to walk through Psalm 15, you're like, you know what? This is crushing. This is devastating. But here's the good news. Because in the same way that the psalm is meant to crush the reader, to devastate the reader, it's also meant to be a comfort. But before it can be a comfort, listen to me, and this is so important. This is why I pray the same prayer every single week, is that we would see God for how beautiful He is in light of who we are, and we would see our need for Jesus. Because unless you are devastated, unless you are crushed, unless you see your need, then this psalm will not be a comfort to you. Now, in order for good news to be good, there has to be bad news, or at least a threat of bad news, right? Because this psalm obviously points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you can't really understand Psalm 15 unless you understand this psalm is meant to remind you, and this is so important, this psalm is meant to remind you that human effort can never make you acceptable before God. It's meant to remind you that your moralistic approach to, to religion, right? You, you, your, your approach to trying to look good on the outside and to have everything together and appear to have everything together, to always try to be in control, Right, that, that, that your moralistic approach to God or that your good works can never earn your salvation. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. It doesn't matter how many VBS pins you get, how many scriptures you memorize. None of that is what is going to get you to heaven. Can't do it. This psalm is meant to remind us that we will never, ever, ever achieve acceptance with God based on our own righteousness. Right, Isaiah 53, Old Testament prophet, he says, your our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. Your best deeds, your best day, when you think you are knocking it out of the park, is like filthy rags before God. And what I hope you see is that God's standard is unattainable. Well, you just can't do it. But rather what this psalm does is it calls us, listen to me, it calls us to abandon our own righteousness 2 Corinthians 5.21, you can write it down, says, For our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus actually became my sin so that I could literally become his righteousness that's the gospel that's the good news right that christ suffered the full wrath of god for my sin when jesus was on the cross god poured out all of his wrath of our sin on jesus jesus christ traded places with me Living the perfect life that I could not. He lived Psalm 15. And dying the death that I have been condemned to die. He took my record. He died for it. He offers me his perfect record in return. Right? And isn't that a sweet deal? Jesus, you take my sin. I get your perfect life. He took my shame. He took my guilt. He took my nakedness. 
in order to clothe me with his righteousness. This is so important, listen to me, because this is, this is the gospel. This is good news, but, but I think we wrestle with this. And this is why, right, this is what this means. It means that God, listen to me, God could not love you any more than he does right now. Because God could not love and accept Jesus any more than he does. And God sees you in Christ. And until we have an awareness and a conviction of our own personal sin, we will never see the beauty of the gospel. We'll never see the beauty of Jesus and what he did for us. Until we see our sin, until we stop playing games, until we stop saying, you know what, it's not that bad. Until we, until we stop being blind to our own sin, we will never see how beautiful the gospel is. That's, that's the first step, is to see it. So I, I would just plead with you this morning, if you're here, and, and, and maybe, you've, maybe you don't know Christ, maybe, maybe you don't have a relationship, maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and that, that's what you've got to do. You've got to recognize that, hey, I'm a sinner, I fall short, and I need, I, I can't do Psalm 15, I need, I'm Psalm 14, I need Jesus. That that's what you need to do today. You need to confess your sin. You need to, to, to repent and turn to Jesus. That's, that's, that, that's your first step if you're here. Or maybe you're here and you've done that, but you've just you've, you've kind of been living however you want to live. And that's unacceptable also. And so, so let me move on then to, to, to how does the gospel change us? This is short. Okay? I mean, listen, we could, we could spend years and years and years on the gospel, and we will. Right? We will. Every single week we're going to preach the gospel. But listen... The gospel, if you, if you ever said to yourself, man, I'm ready to move on from the gospel, then you just don't understand the gospel because the gospel is so deep, you'll never get to t- the bottom of it, right? It just, it, it just it will never happen. And so, so how does the gospel change us and transform us? And this is, this is the first, let me give you a couple things here. First, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in our life, we slowly, slowly begin to grasp this new way this new identity of how safe and secure, because listen, that's the big thing, and how loved and accepted we are in Christ. That's always our biggest obstacle is understanding that we are safe and secure and how much God loves us through Jesus Christ. All right, so through the gospel, we come to base our identity not on what we've achieved, but what, on, but what has been achieved for us through Jesus. And so what that does is it does two things for us, okay? It's going to destroy your pride. It's going to destroy your pride. If you're here and you're like, you know what, I've got this thing figured out. I'm a pretty good person. I do all right. The gospel is going to destroy that. Those who think they have it all together, those who try to fake it to make it, those who think they can earn God's acceptance. Right? And there are people like that. I mean, there are people in the church all the time like this. They, 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 they go and 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 they think everything that they're doing, they're, they're, what they're doing is they're, they're playing religious games because they think, well, if I do all these things, then I can earn God's love. And all you're doing is exhausting yourself. So the gospel destroys your pride. It destroys pride because it tells you that you are so lost that Jesus had to die for us. But the second thing is the gospel destroys our fearfulness. Have you ever 
gotten down at yourself or mad because you messed up and you, you kind of beat yourself up? Have you ever gone like several days or weeks and just kind of been, been beating yourself up because of something you did? Right? And you think to yourself, well, does God love me? Right? Does God accept me? Does God forgive me? Right? We, we have those thoughts. Like, listen, you're constantly in a wrestling match with your heart because your heart is, is dirty. It needs, it needs to be new. It needs to be renewed. It needs to be changed. And so you're constantly having these arguments with your heart, and you're thinking, man, it's, am I in? Am I out? You know, does God love me? But, but again, where the gospel destroys that fearfulness is because the gospel tells us that there's nothing we can do. Listen to me. There's nothing you can do to exhaust God's love for you. Do you believe that? So the gospel is not just about trying to change behavior. It's not just about trying to, 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 to do a set of rules. Okay, I checked that off the box. I've done this. I've done that. Now the, the gospel is about changing our heart. It's about giving us a new heart. Because if all you do is address the behavior, then that's not going to change you. Because eventually you're going to snap right back into that behavior. And the only thing that can give you a new heart is a God, the gospel, Jesus which leads me to the second way the gospel changes us, and this is short, and that is our motivations for obedience. Right? And so, so some people will take us to the other extreme, right? You've got the moralistic approach, which says, you know, I'm going to earn God's salvation. I'm going to earn God's acceptance. I'm going to earn salvation. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum that says, you know what? I'm, I'm forgiven. God loves me. There's nothing I can do to exhaust his love, so I, that, gives me a sin, that gives me a license to sin and do whatever I want to, Right? I just go out and just do a lot of hell raising and drinking and whatever, and I'll be forgiven. And that's not, that's not the gospel. That's not what the gospel does, right? The gospel begins to change our motivations for obedience. In other words, we don't, we don't obey to earn God's approval, right? We obey because we already have God's approval. We desire to be obedient because of what God has done for us through Jesus, right? So, so let me put it this way. Um, just, so just because we can't do Psalm 15 doesn't mean we don't try. Right? We, 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 don't, we don't try to do it because we're trying to earn God's, again, we don't, we don't do it because we're trying to earn God's acceptance. We do it because of what God has already done for us. But you see, what we have to understand is our identity has been changed. I like what John Piper says. This is what John Piper says. He says, we belong to Christ. We are children of God. We have been clothed in Christ. And so what remains is for us to dress like it, to live like it, and to fight like it. The clothes and the fight do not make us children of the light. In other words, you're not fighting to be, to be accepted. You're already accepted. Now what you're doing is fighting to live as a child of God. Right? Does that make sense? And so what the gospel does is it leads us to do the right thing, not for our sake, but for God's sake, for Christ's sake. Right, out, of a, out of a desire to know and to resemble him and to please and to love the one who saved us, that, that's our motivation for obedience. So every day we wake up, we strive to become more like Jesus. Every day we should say, man, this is, this is how I want to live. Psalm 15, I want to be like Psalm 15. I know I'm Psalm 14, but I want to be like Psalm 15. And every day we wake up, we say, Lord, I confess my shortcomings. Man, I confess that I was short-tempered yesterday. I confess that I, I flew off the handle yesterday. I confess that I, I did this. Or I can, whatever it is, you just confess, Lord, I, I did this. 
But then you remind yourself, man, I'm a child of yours, and I know that you love me and that you accept me. So that's the good news about the gospel, man, is, is when you fall down, the gospel allows you to get back up and keep going without feeling that shame and guilt because Jesus took shame and guilt for us. So every single day we're confessing that for not being this type of person and help me today to take another step towards becoming more like you. And every day you should pray and that you should look back in two years and four years and six years and ten years and you should see that you've moved further along, that you're becoming more and more like Jesus by the power, by the, by the grace and the power of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for uh, just how powerful it is, God. And I pray this morning that as we are here, that, you, that your word, just uh, as it did in Acts, God, that, that it cuts us to the heart. God, that we would see our need for you. God, that we would see that uh, whether, whether we just totally need to put our faith and trust in you, God, for salvation, or, or maybe we have just lacked belief in the gospel, whatever it is, God, I pray that you would just convict us and you would show us that. God, I pray this morning that there's someone here that needs to do that, that they would come and they would do that this morning. Father, we thank you for the way that you love us. We thank you for your grace and mercy. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing a song and the prayer team is going to be up here.